So let me just give a little confession. Thank you for that, Shannon. Um, I'm a sucker for love. I mean, that's hard to admit because I've really got a lot of sharp edges to me. But if I watch a movie, and uh, typically if it's a father's love for his children, I'm done. Like I quit. I can't help it. It can be a poorly done movie. I'm crying. Um, but I'm going to give you another like a judgment on you. I think you're a sucker for love too. I think when it's all done, there's a niche in every person's heart, no matter how crusty you might be, is that's, that's it. That's love. And I think we all deal with that. Um, every man, woman, and child dis- ex- is kind of seen in this expression for desire for love, right? Um, we go through this so much here, so this should just sound like a setup, but I don't want you to skip it. The way the scriptures describe us in its blunt form is that, according to David, born in iniquity. That's the way we were born. Sinful from birth. Paul describes it in Romans 5 this way. Sin came into the world through one man, the first man, Adam. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now those passages describe something that we were born with, sin, but they do not describe something that we were born without and that is the affections of God. Like, you don't perceive it. You just walk around and bump into things and hurt yourself and other people, but there's this hole in every man, woman, and child when we're born. We don't know our creator. There's an absence of his love, an absence of that relationship. Let me describe to you what I think is kind of the biggest concern for people. You tell me what's worse. Is it that there's a self-inflicted harm of sin, Sinful actions, the things that we do that ruin us and other things or other people? Is it the anger, the lust, the stealing, the pride, the selfishness? You make your list, whatever it is. Or is it the deep, deep longing for God that you can never satisfy? I'm going to suggest to you it's that. That's the worst harm you carry around with you beyond just the self-destruction of sin. It's kind of like a parent. I mean, I've thought of illustrations. A parent whose child goes missing. You know, there's a piece of you it's gone. The, the, the anxiousness in your heart, the fear in your heart, the, the awareness that something so precious to you is missing, isn't that more painful? Isn't that more a description of what you miss by sin? And that's the impetus behind our sin, by the way. Sin is simply every way man tries to fill the void they feel not having God. That just explains why we do what we do. There's something missing you know this, uh, the, the wisdom writer Solomon said that God has set eternity in the hearts of all men. In other words, there's a code that God has created within our hearts. And we can't run from that. Jesus, when he was speaking, said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, now get this, from his in, innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. That phrase innermost being is a, is a Greek uh, phrase for place, an empty place. Jesus is saying the same thing. There's an empty place in you, and if you drink from me, you get that satisfied. There is this longing in human hearts. We talk about the love of God always. The story we have in front of us today is another depiction of the love of God. But just to make it clear, the love of God isn't a feeling. You know, when my kids look at me during those, those mushy parts of the movie and I start crying, they all do that. Every time that spot happens, they look at me. He's going to cry. It's like code. Um, the love of God isn't a good feeling. 
It's his nature. It's who he is. It explains everything you need to know for why he comes for us and why he superbounds his grace to us. It's who he is. And it's also a watermark on every human heart. I know you know what a watermark is, right? There's a letterhead or something, you hold it up and you see the manufacturer's label in kind of in the distance with light. I looked up the definition. It says a faint design made during manufacturing that is visible when held against the light that identifies its maker. You and I were made that way. There's a watermark on the human heart, right? You're made to know God, to thrive with your Father, to know his love and to reflect it. The reality is this, and maybe you have enough history that you can admit this freely, but like, like I've seen many times stories of people who are stranded at sea and, and uh, they're just dying of thirst and they drink the wrong water. You just have got a narrative for life without God. Life without God means you're going to have a thirst and the world offers options and it's salt water and you're going to die. And that's just the experience of what it's like to not know him. That's the story of our life for certain. It's the story of the woman at the well that Jesus encounters in John chapter 4. So that's where we're going to pick up this narrative today. Let me ask you a question just for kicks and giggles. Uh, the, the, the series, The Chosen, has anybody seen that? You made it to episode 8 yet? Okay, I did. I thought for just a second, let me just play that. I'll get out of the way. Because I bawled like a baby in that, in that episode. Uh, there's no like, like teaser alert. You know how the story goes, right? But it's just very powerful uh, of what they depict in that story. The woman and her discovery, what Jesus reveals to her. But that's the story you find ourselves in today. The story of the loving pursuit of God. That's the big, big idea, the meta-narrative. It's a story of the pursuit of God for the thirsty heart of mankind. Seen in the story of this particular woman. It's an easy story to understand. It's just this, this woman and Jesus in the most significant conversation she'll ever have in her entire life. And so I'm going to try to draw those connections between her story and our story all the way through this as we discover what God is doing in this woman's life. It happens to be the longest recorded conversation anywhere in Scripture that Jesus has with anybody. It's the first time that Jesus actually is mentioned encountering a, a non-Jew. So those are significant things, I think. Let's look at the first nine verses, however, and start unpacking it. and See how these two meet, Jesus and this woman. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, picture the scene if you can. Uh, I don't think it's exaggerating when it says that Jesus was weary from the day, walked a long journey, it was hot, 
it was high noon. So let's say it was a miserable part of the day. And Jesus and his disciples are passing through Samaria and stop at a place called Sychar. And it's described here as where Jacob's well was. The patriarch, 2,000 years before, had built this well. And this woman comes out in the middle of the day and Jesus simply looks at her and asks for a drink. That's a pretty simple beginning to the story. But it's really pretty extreme if you get the background to why um, what's happening here. You know this, probably you've already heard this, how uh, the Jews despised the Samaritans, had no dealings with the Samaritans. And the reason why is because the Samaritans to a Jew were considered heretics and half-breeds. That's no exaggeration. Um, Samaritans come out of intermarriage between the Assyrians and other Gentiles uh, during that kind of conquest of Israel in, in 722 B.C., so you've got this basic pagan people with their pagan ways and their pagan beliefs intermarry with the Jews. And out of that came a blended kind of people group. Their blended beliefs uh, between some of the first five books, the Pentateuch, right, and idol worship. And that's who they were. They didn't recognize the temple in Jerusalem, so they built their own at Mount Gerizim, which is kind of right there just south of this well where Jesus is meeting this woman for the first time. So if you, pick, if you picture in your mind, we hate those people, <clears throat> that's exactly the demeanor between Jews and Samaritans. It's hard to exaggerate. We don't talk to those people. We walk around that land. We don't want to engage anyone. So just right away, just put in your mind, what's happening here is really extreme and unusual for Jesus to be there and to talk to her. With that in mind, if you look at verse 4, there's an interesting little phrase <clears throat> there that I want to just point out to you. It says that they had to pass, excuse me, <clears throat> through Samaria. Well, in one sense, that's not true. They didn't have to. They could have done what every other Jew did, walk around. Just walk around Samaria to get where you're going. But I, I want you to realize why they had to go through here, and it was, it's, really, it's really simple and yet profound. God had a divine appointment for this woman, just like you and me. I was sitting probably on a couch somewhere in 1980 when God had his divine appointment with me. You remember, don't you? Wherever it is, he, he comes to you. And so he had this woman in mind. He had to go to Samaria because they had a meeting she wasn't aware of. And that's what happened. There's something else I want you to notice. This woman came alone at noon, and that's not normal either. And it says some things that need to be appreciated. You see, women would go to the well during the morning or the evening, the cool of the day, wherever it was, and they would go together with other women. It was a social thing, and it was a practical thing, and try to do it in the most easy way possible during the cool of the day. This woman is alone, and it's high noon. We're going to see why she's alone and why she's going when she does in just a minute. There's another unusual thing taking place here. Jesus broke the rule. What's the rule? Don't talk to Samaritans. Don't talk to Samaritan women. And he did that. In fact, there is a, a kind of a, an understanding by strict rabbis um, that they would never talk to a woman, never talk to a Samaritan. In fact, specifically as regards to women, there was a group of, of Pharisees called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Perhaps you remember me telling you this before. Well, when they saw women, they would put their head down and run into things. And that's how they got their name. They were just so passionate to avoid even a conversation. 
And so Jesus is breaking the rules. There's another scandalous thing that Jesus did, and that was uh, asking to drink from her cup, because you know what that meant, right? That means that she's unclean, that means he is unclean, and no self-respecting Jew would do something like that. But you should see now what's behind all the scandal. Something's driving Jesus. What is it? There's a word, a four-letter word. Love. Love. I'm a sucker for love. Every bit of the story of Jesus moving towards this woman and breaking all the rules because he has an appointment for her grace. I just moves me. It's a wonderful story. Okay, now let's look at the conversation that he has with her and what Jesus offers her. Look at verse 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from him himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or will I have to come here to draw water? In the midst and the surprise of this moment and all the scandal that's behind it as, as we've seen already, Jesus suddenly turns the conversation to a spiritual direction. And I want you not to miss this. It's classic in stories like this that we're so won over to what's happening there that you forget that it's happening here. And I want you to see that his words apply to you as much as they apply to her. So make certain you do the, do the work in your own mind. There's an offering that Jesus is making to her that is the offering that if you trust in Christ, he's made to you. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, let me just ask you to lean in really close this morning because it's the same offering he makes to any and all of you. It's a wonderful story. Jesus declares himself to this woman and to all of us that he is, and these are his words, that he's the the gift of God and the living water. Those are pretty big claims. That he's the giver and the gift of life. Now, now some people have suggested that the woman wouldn't get that Jesus was referring to spiritual things, right? That it just went over her head completely. Because the word living water can be translated flowing water. And that somehow what Jesus was referring to her was simply a better version of what she was there to get. Like, I'm here in the middle of the day and I have to draw water anyway and you've got a better water like you've got Hebrew Evian, I'll take that. Whatever that is, something better than what I already have. But the, the uh, Samaritans also knew their first five books and they knew that God was called the fountain of living waters in that scripture. And you know she knew because her response in verse 12 makes it clear. Are you greater than our father Jacob? In other words, who do you think you are? Because I know you're saying something. You're not just offering water you're suggesting something much more grand. And so Jesus goes back to his offer and he describes it. Tell me, this doesn't sound wonderful. I've got water that's complete. I've got a water that completely satisfies. 
one that is permanent, unlike every other pursuit of your life. Everything else has a, has a expire by date, and I don't. You've discovered that, haven't you? <laughs> I'm 59 years old, and I discover this every day. Every day. We chase at things that scream at us, come here, come here, come here for life. I've got life. And we go running that way with our heads down, and it never, ever works out. I don't want to be too descriptive of your journey, but I think your journey is like my journey, so maybe this works. Every sadness and disappointment in our lives comes from the letdown, expecting life from dead things. Dead things can't give you life. So that you chase after them and go, wow, that was nothing. No surprise. You can't deliver. Jesus knows that. You and I know that. This woman knows that. And we're going to see in a minute that she does. By the way, it's important that we're clear here on what Jesus is saying. He is not saying that when you come to Jesus, you'll never be dry. Because Christian, look at me for a second. I don't care how old you are in Christ. Are there moments you feel dry? Come on. Yes, right? When you look at the scriptures, and they used to just like jump off the page at you, and now you read them and go, man, I'm trying. I'm trying. Why doesn't that story move me like it did before? Why am I not interested in going to church? Why don't I not want to sing songs and praise him? Why am I so distracted with how the shop is going or how work is or how my family is? Why isn't the things of God just flaming up in me? Why? Why do you experience that dryness? Well, you've got the encounter between the flesh and the spirit. They're at war with each other. We get confused. There's all sorts of things to describe the natural way of dryness, even in the Christian life. So Jesus isn't saying, come to me and you'll be on a high all the time. He's simply saying that when God gives his supply, it means that you'll never have to go thirsty. Do you understand there's a big difference? Your, your longing, even your dryness, is a depiction of your greatest desire. It's missing. I need it. Somebody told me, I, w- I read this uh, recently about how Americans overdrink water. Now, if you're a health nut, don't come up and confront me. I'm just winging it here. So um, my wife drinks nonstop like nonstop water, and, and I don't drink at all. I wake up and, oh, yeah, it's 2 o'clock. Maybe I should drink some water. That's just how it happens for me. And so I was reading this, and the reason why it struck me probably because I go, yeah, and I can preach that, but um, they say, you overdrink. And then they said something that just struck me. You don't have to worry about forcing yourself to drink because God made you that when you're thirsty, you'll want to drink. I went, amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. No harm, no foul. You you get my point? Christian, when you're thirsty, there's always water. That's what Jesus says. You don't have to be thirsty. He is the perfect satisfaction. He's always there. Jeremiah 29, if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all of your what? He's always there. You don't have to be thirsty. One more thing I want you to see that he offers us about this life. Verse 14, he calls it a welling up eternal life, a welling up eternal life. It's interesting if you uh, remember, recall in Acts, I think it's chapter three, 
where Peter and John are kind of walking to the temple and they run into a crippled man who's been crippled his whole life and he's doing what he can do. He's begging for alms, just, just take care of me. And Peter looks at him and says, look at me. And he looks, he says, I don't have what you're looking for. I don't have gold or silver, but I'll give you what I do have. And he tells the man to rise up. Remember this story? And he does. And it says in the text that he immediately leaped. Remember? And it wasn't just like, oh, my legs are back. He leaped, and the whole depiction of the story is his enthusiasm, his joy for finding his legs after being crippled his whole life. That phrase, leaped, is the same word for uh, well up. Same phrase. So hopefully you're getting the math here. Part of this living water that wells up in us is a leaping welling. It's a joyful leaping. There's a thing of joy that comes out of this spring of life this water, this eternal water, it's a great joy. And it is the opposite by contrast and compare. It's the opposite of the stagnant life you see all around you. Somebody mentioned to me back here earlier, hey, did you watch the, did you watch the debate? <laughs> you know what my answer is? No, I never watch that stuff. It doesn't do anything for my soul. I mean, I know I got my head buried in the sand. <laughs> I realize that. But the Bible talks about guarding your heart and setting no evil before your eyes. I don't even know what I don't know. All I know is how I feel when I watch the world try to figure it out. And it wears me out. So in my naivete, I bury my head in the sand. I'm sorry, church. But that's sort of how I manage. That, to me, looks like the stagnant life. That's why the world's pulling itself apart. It's trying to fix the problem with no answers. There is no authority, there is no absolutes, there is every man for himself. There's this thing that God does in his people. And these are words you heard before, the idea of peace that surpasses all understanding, joy that's unspeakable, full of glory. These demeanors, these attitudes are the attitudes of people who lean so much into the living water, the only thing that can come out of it is peace and joy which is opposite than what you see in our culture. I want you to notice, I mean, this is just a, a small touch, but I love the, the series, The Chosen, because it really depicts the humanness of the interactions between Jesus and, and the folks he ran into. But notice in this thing how Jesus is really present with this woman. He's looking at her. He's noticing her. He's speaking to her. He's listening to her. He doesn't put her down. He doesn't judge her. He's not writing her off. There's a real human connection she's making this woman who has no other real good human connections. So look at what Jesus does next, verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, now this is a response to her talking about, you know, hey, is there another water I can draw that I don't have to come here? And he says, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have uh, now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Does that sound insensitive to you? I mean, that doesn't sound like good counseling to me. I mean, to expose her like that? Just call her out? She's clearly uncomfortable, at least as I read it. And the reason why she doesn't tell the whole truth is because she's uncomfortable. 
She knows she's hiding, but she doesn't know that Jesus knows she's hiding. I mean, that's how it works, right? I'm just going to give you just enough to not look stupid, but I'm not giving it all. And so he just says it. You're right. You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had a bunch of husbands. Let me just suggest to you that that wasn't harsh, that it was love on display Because what was keeping her from this living water that Jesus was describing, this one that permanently satisfies, this one that's always available, was seeing her need for it. Right? If you don't know you're thirsty, you will never drink. If If you don't have the recognition of a need, you'll never pursue the answer. We say it all the time here um, when we talk about the good news that Jesus saves sinners, that the good news always starts with a a declaration of the bad news of how severe the condition is, right? Bad news that we're sinners separated from, from this life of God that he offers. So here's this woman's story. Without the conviction of her sin, she couldn't have life. It wasn't available to her. You understand that's how it works for us, right? If you... Hear the claims of Jesus, and you go, I got another way. Well, guess what you don't get? You don't get God's way. You don't get Jesus. You don't get forgiveness. You don't get salvation. You don't get your heart transformed. If you think that there's another option or he's one of the many, well, then you lose out on the whole. Without the conviction of sin, she couldn't have life. Let me just suggest to you what you probably already know the most loving thing Jesus could possibly do at this moment was to actually say, you're right, you have five. And the one you're living with now isn't even your husband. I'll tell you that I don't think it's uh, harsh or malpractice. It's very much like a doctor who I don't go to very often, if ever, unless I'm bleeding somewhere. Um, but as a doctor who says, hey, there's something here, we've got to cut it out, that, that scalpel is a scary thing. It looks like an instrument of really bad news. But you know, given to the right person, that it actually brings healing. Here's the creator of, of life who looks right to her core. And he goes right at the cancer of sin. And he exposes not only that she's had problems, that she is a problem, And he says it in love. That exposure to put the spotlight on all her failed attempts at joy without God was love. You're right, lady, you've tried to find love with that guy and that guy and that guy and that guy and that guy. Can you imagine what happened in her mind in just a couple of seconds? Yeah, me too. It's no different than us. All of us who have pursued other ways, you know, we call them in this great picture a mirage. You know, you run into a mirage, you think it's a pond of water, and you drink the sand. You go, wow, what was that? Well, that's exactly what's happened to this woman. But by the way, and I've said this already, but I just want to keep coming back to this. Her looking for life and love isn't the problem. She was made for it. But looking for it endlessly in all the wrong places is crushing her, and Jesus knows it. So the most loving thing he can do is say, hey, I know where you're getting killed here, and I want to help. By exposing it, he's bringing life. Look at how she responds in verse 19 and 20. 
The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, in this place where people ought to worship. Now, some would say or suggest that this is her attempt to change the subject real quick. Yeah, look over there. Jesus, let's stop talking about my five husbands. What about this temple of worship thing? Um, But I don't think she's trying to change the subject. She understood that... um, that in that culture, at least the understanding was that prophets really could see things. They really did know things. And in that conviction of being called out on her real true story, the first thing she thinks about is, well, how do I fix it? And she does what a lot of people do. Where do I go to church? What temple? Where am I supposed to do this fix-it thing? How do I cure my own problems? How do I pursue being religious? And that's her attempt. She didn't argue. She didn't say, I'm not a sinner. I'm not guilty. You're right, I am. So where can I take my sacrifice to solve this problem? Where can I fix that? Where can I make it right? Look at Jesus' response in verse 21. We'll go all the way to 24. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus says something just really plain, and you, you probably already know this. Salvation isn't about going to the right mountain. It's about going to the right Savior. There's all sorts of saviors, small s saviors in the world. Do this, think that, believe this. There's one Savior. The way, the truth, and life Savior. The author of life Savior. The forgiver of sins Savior. It's Jesus and nobody else. There's only one option. Your problem, woman, isn't solved by choosing some sort of sacrifice. You need help. I mean, I can't help but think about our culture how it looks at problems and then says, how do we fix those problems? And it's not as if Jesus even exists anymore. He's not even one of the many options. He's been pushed so far to the margins that people just start lining up answers without God. There's no hope in that. There's no salvation in that. And by the way, there's no forgiveness in that. That means you die in your sins, you face a holy God. That's the truth. But here Jesus says the Father is seeking people who will worship him and he does it that qualifier in truth and in spirit, right? In truth simply means what God has said about himself, what God cares about, who God is, how he's revealed himself, that's truth. How he overwhelms your mind of what he is and what he cares about. I've been doing a remodel at my house, which I hate, by the way. I'd rather lay under a truck all day, every day, then work on putting a little screw. I was putting doorknobs on the, on the kitchen cabinets and I was freaking out. Isn't that weird? I'm gonna miss, I'm gonna miss, I'm gonna miss. It was terrible. You miss by a little bit at the bottom. How far off are you at the top? It's a carpenter rule, man. If you start at eight off at the bottom, the house is 10 feet tall, woo-hoo, your, your building looks really messed up. That's like building your life a little off on God, Truth. For instance, I'm using an example. 
If you walk around, and some churches actually present this, that God's preeminent concern is your happiness. And you go, okay, well, if he's concerned about my happiness, that's the explanation for a horrendous amount of suffering. Because if I'm supposed to be happy, and I just run off to be happy, and you look around, and there's scars on you and scars on other people. But if you understand that God's main concern is your holiness by which you'll be most happy, then it comes a whole different way. Do you understand? He says the Father is seeking people who worship him both in truth and in spirit. In other words, he wants your heart. There's a big difference between performance because I know something and worship because I love someone. Jesus knows that. I want your heart. I, w- I, want, I want you to love me. It is the depiction of the greatest commandment, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's everything you got, every piece of you devoted to him. Let's finish the story. Last uh, five verses we're going to look at today, verse 25 through 30. Notice the effects of the love of Christ. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, now I gotta believe this is the most amazing thing anybody ever heard. I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. (laughs) But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left, with her, left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So they went out of the town and were coming to him. I believe verse 26, right there, God opens this woman's eyes to declare Jesus for who he really was, to know him for what he said of himself, that he was the Messiah In other words, you know, there's a big difference between what you hear and what you get in your heart. It went past her ears and went down to her soul. This is the one. This is the one. By the way, that's exactly how it works for all of us who come to Christ. He reveals himself to us. We see him for who he really is, as divine. He is God in the flesh. We understand that he exchanges my sin for his righteousness, this wonderful double imputation that he died in my place. His sin satisfied God's righteous standards for us, and we are made new, and we are made holy, draped in the righteous robes of Jesus. That is what happens, and that's what we declare. That's how it works. He speaks to your heart. He convicts you. And what you understand is that there is no other option. This is it. This is the truth. If you want proof of this uh, confession for this woman, just look at the story. She leaves all of her stuff and immediately goes to witness of Jesus. First words out of her mouth. In fact, the text says in verse 29, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, which is an exaggeration because he didn't. But it was a declaration that she thought he could right? He got to the core of me in one sentence, and I know he can go deeper. He can pull me apart in pieces. You know why? Because he's divine. Her confession was radical right from the beginning. Come see the man who sees me. Isn't that why you worship? And why you lift your hands? And why you sing? 
that you're declaring that. Like, he's got me. He knows all of me, which is part of the reason why you cry in worship, because you're sitting here like I do many times going, I don't belong here, right? I shouldn't be here. That's the, that's the head talking, right? And that's probably the adversary talking. And you're going, look what I am, look what I do, look how I think, right? And yet his, his love superabounds. Come see the man who sees me and yet doesn't quit. Come see the man who sees what you're made of and he loves you to an everlasting love. That is the love of Christ. That's what this woman got. She confessed it. Remember where this story began? She came to the well alone and she was ostracized. She had to be. There's nobody wanting to hang around a woman like her. She had a bad reputation. Five husbands and more men. So there was no company for her. Life was hard for her. She'd kept her head down and tried to keep her secrets. And now, guess what happens? All that happened was Jesus exposes her, the lights come on, and she runs into town to say, come see the man who sees me. What does he see? I'm a sinner. She was fine with telling people that then. She's changed. Just like those of us who trust in Christ, Jesus peels back the layers on us. He becomes our living water. You know this. This story is our story. How many of us would be at the well and then he would look at us and we're kind of finding our way without him, thirsty, alone? And if Jesus opened his mouth to kind of call you out, expose you, what would he say? (laughs) I know. I've thought about it too. Just like this woman, our sin has excluded us, it's lied to us, it's blinded us, it's broken our heart. That's true. That's what sin does. But God's love comes to this woman in the form of Jesus, just like he does us. He seeks her out. He drives directly to her for this divine appointment to open her eyes by exposing her sin and revealing himself. I like to think, you know, how would she, what would she say? Like, what would her testimony be? If you could write down, like, her words, she's running around in this town telling her story, perhaps it would sound like Paul's words. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. You'll get my point. But because of his great love for me, God, who is rich in mercy, made me alive in Christ even when I was dead. In my sense. That is our story. That is our confession. So church, look at me for a second. What did you hear today? Yeah. The love of Christ is profound. It outruns every train wreck in this room. And I'm a train wreck. And I look at some of you and I go, oh, he's a train wreck too. But we're together. We're together. But it does. It superabounds. And, and you won't go away from here and tell your story in the city where you aren't the person who had five husbands or whatever train wreck story. You'll be the one with five husbands and a train wreck story who's been forgiven of your sins. That's who we are. Own it. Embrace it. Love it. Let's pray. Lord God, I do thank you for this story as it just tells my story, tells our story who love you. 
Father, I can't tell you um, how grateful we are and how grateful I am that I know you see the core of who I am and you love me anyway. Every bit of the divine pursuit seen in the story has been experienced in our lives. Every way it concludes has been concluded the same way in our lives. Christ reveals himself and brings everlasting life and water. Lord God, we worship you. We thank you for that truth. Don't ever let us wander from it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.